thing that Scott just read, I might as well go home. He said everything I'm going to say. So. Here is a fun fact to know and share. In, um, in Palestine, among the Orthodox believers, Epiphany does not represent the uh, visit of the Magi. It represents Jesus' bapti- baptism in the River Jordan. So a lot of um, Palestinians will go to the site where they celebrate uh, the baptism of Jesus, and a lot of people from Jordan, which is right on the other side of the river, right there, it's right across the, across the road, um, and they get to see their extended families who they don't get to see because of the visa issues and getting out in and out of the West Bank. So it's, it's really kind of a different celebration, but I think both the um, revelation of Jesus to the Gentiles and his baptism, um, they kind of both lead to the same thing. This, this expression, the result of epiphany being peace and a lot more than that, okay? So I just finished a course uh, through Bethlehem Bible College called uh, Peacemaking and Justice in the Palestinian Conflict con- Context. And it was fabulous. It was such a good course. The uh, instructors are just so, so good. And I know Scott's going to be taking it um, later on, and I think Molly's going to be taking it. So we're going to kind of all be on the same page, which is good because, um, as you know, peace and reconciliation are uh, some of the core values of our church. So it's, um, it's good that we're kind of staying on the same page. So we learned, like, some basic concepts of peace and justice. We learned about peace in the Old Testament, peace in the New Testament, um, peace in Judaism, um, Christian-Muslim dialogue and peace, uh, nonviolence, um, conflict and identity, settler colonialism, and, you know, then some basic stuff about the um, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So it was really, really very, very good. And um, so I'm going to share a little bit about that and then what other stuff that the Lord's been kind of showing me lately. Um, But I thought I'd start off with a quote from Martin Luther King, since Monday was Martin Luther King Day. This is not Martin Luther King. (laughs) That's Jesus. There's a difference. Okay. So this is from his letter from Birmingham Jail. And it says, So I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent. Rather, I have tried to say that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled into the creative outlet of nonviolent direct action. And now this approach is being termed extremist. But I thought, but though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them who spitefully, despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice. There was a time when the church was very powerful in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed in. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of of society. 
Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven called to obey God rather than man. It's pretty good. So what is peace? I'm asking you, what is peace? What do you think of, I mean, what does that entail? No conflict. That is definitely a part of peace. The presence of justice, another good part of peace. What else? Love, yes. Uh huh. Okay. Calm and secure. That's good. All right. So. When we talk about the absence of violence, that's called negative peace, okay? And it's actually, um, it's somebody talked, I think it was Scott, talked uh, a couple weeks ago about Pax Romana. It was a time of peace. There wasn't outright, you know, violence and wars and stuff like that, but it was maintained through social and political repression. Then there's inner peace, like Susan talked about, freedom from chaos, um, Interpersonal peace, human relations, um, divine peace. You could even say an absence of noise and activity, stillness, that's peace. Positive peace, like Molly talked about, is, um, it is it, it's, it's when exploitation is minimized or done away with. The violence is a part of it. There's no overt violence, but... Structural violence is also a part of that. People are denied important rights, equality, self-worth, affordable housing, work opportunities, um, food, things like that. Those are, those forms of oppression are a form of violence. And we, we get all bent out of shape a lot of times. The, it says, uh, people may do enormous amounts of harm to other human beings without ever intending to do so, just performing their regular duties as a job divine, defined in the structure. That's systemic violence or systemic racism or something like that. It's not something you necessarily are overtly doing to somebody else, but it's the system. It's the structure. So I think that's what God is coming to um, to deal with, please God. And positive peace is much more difficult to articulate or to achieve. It's almost like you're creating something that's not there yet or trying to put words to something that you haven't really got figured out altogether. And uh, there's this concept of, um, of shalom, which we've heard about. In Arabic, it's salam, and it means wholeness. Okay, so that is negative peace the absence of conflict, also positive peace, the uh, absence of oppression or exploitation, things like that, harmony between people and within yourself and among nations, things like that. So today we're going to talk about positive peace, and especially as it's lived out under oppression. So think about, um, I, of course, I, I see this 
a lot in the um, situation of the Palestinians um, under a military occupation for how many years? 70-something years. And um, you might see it in a racial um, context. You might see it in uh, people of other religions, things like that. Um, but that's where we're going to talk about peace. Now, Jesus knew what it was like to suffer under oppression. He was born into a time um, of Roman occupation. There wasn't, uh, the Jews had limited freedom within uh, the, the setting of this Roman occupation. Jesus learned about empire, learned about oppression as a child. Remember what Herod did when he found out that Jesus was the king of the Jews? He had the children killed. Do you know that there's not another mention of Jesus ever going to Bethlehem? When I heard that, I was like blown away. I mean, what are the implications of that? Could it be that it was just too heart-wrenching for him to go to Bethlehem knowing what had happened there because empire was trying to kill him? Um, you know, his father, Joseph, was a carpenter, or it could mean stonemason. He was, anyway, he was in construction. So when Jesus lived in Galilee in Nazareth, the Galilee was known to be kind of a um, hotbed of opposition to the Romans. So there was all, all kinds of uprisings here and there and different acts of um, violence and stuff against the Romans. So that's where he grew up. A lot of the people in, now this is speculation, okay, so I'm, just go with me here for a minute. Um, a lot of the people that lived in the Galilee uh, that were, would have been in Joseph's occupation worked to build cities. Okay, so it's like, um, like the Palestinians, many of the Palestinians today are work in building settlements within the West Bank, which are illegal. But um, it is possible that that's what Joseph did for a living. And there was this one, this town of Sepphoris, which is close enough to uh, Nazareth that it could have been, I mean, it was like walking distance. And it was a big, big, um, they were building this city, and there was a rebellion and the Romans came in and wiped it off the map and everybody that was in it. So had Joseph been working in that city, he would have could have been wiped off the map with everybody else in the city. Okay? We don't know what happened to Joseph. I'm just saying that's a possibility. But he disappears from, you know, after after Jesus is an adult. We never hear about him anymore. So let me read you a little bit about from a book that I'm reading. Molly, it's the one that I gave you. It says so for at least part of his childhood, Jesus grew up without Joseph in a landscape littered with reminders of men lost, his own father likely among them. Even he didn't escape the heartbreak or the haunting presence of empire. He was not spared the personal trauma of loss and the difficult learning of how to live without a loved one. Jesus not only inhabited a traumatized landscape, he was a victim of imperial trauma from a young age. Before he carried the cross through the narrow streets of Jerusalem, his body carried the loss in Nazareth. 
This is incarnation, not inhabiting a body of privilege exempt from poverty and violence, but living in a body thick with trauma common to most men in Galilee and Judea. God incarnated this pain in his own body. It became part of his human experience and is now woven into God's eternal memory. Jesus had a lifelong relationship with Roman soldiers and those who colluded with the empire that killed so many of his neighbors and relatives and perhaps his own father. Consider the deeper power then of Jesus' words of love, forgiveness, and mercy in light of his own trauma. To love those who wrought suffering on his family and himself is divine love. His human grief pierced straight into the heart of God and God's love came in response. So that's the context I want us to think about as we're looking at this today. Okay, the scripture says, Matthew 5, you've heard it was said, I, you know what, I'm talking a lot. Can somebody else read that for me? <laughs> I, I'm tired. I want somebody else to, let's participate. Let's have audience participation. <laughs> See that um, phrase that says, do not resist an evil person? Back in 1611, when they were translating the King James Bible, the, the translators who would have wanted to stay on the side of good old King James translated this word, which is, I, and I probably won't pronounce it right, anti-stenai? I don't know. That's, we'll just go with that for the time being. They, changed, they, they translated it as resist not evil. So kind of what that does is changes any kind of resistance into docility. How many of you grew up knowing, um, you know, somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turns them on the left cheek, all, and so it kind of made you into a doormat. Yep, it kind of kind of was like, Okay, I'll be meek, and I just won't do any kind of response. And da 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 da. A better translation of that word is: Do not retaliate against violence with violence. Do not react violently against someone that's evil. So there's basically three responses to evil: passivity, which a lot of us as Christians have been taught; violent opposition. And then Jesus has a third way of militant nonviolence. So I need a volunteer. Who wants to volunteer?
wants you to be punched. He's saying change the narrative. Change the narrative and change the power structure. Okay? What's the guy going to do? He's going to say, oh, forgive me, forgive me, or hope you forgive me. No. He's going to yell, quit, right? Because he is. You love him because that's that is who he is. See, so it's just, it's a matter of re-examining situations in the light of dignity. It's an act of defiance. It says, I defy you the right to humiliate me because I'm a human being just like you. Your status doesn't alter the fact. Okay, so he's raising the dignity of the person. Now, this one is kind of weird. Jesus had a great sense of humor, and this would not be appropriate in the American church, but we're going to do it. <laughs> okay. No, no, that's okay. On this one, I don't think you want to volunteer for this one. You better rethink that. <laughs> okay, so it says if someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Okay, well, in those days they didn't have... I mean, how many layers of clothing do we wear, right? They had an undergarment and an overgarment, right? So if they're sending, if the, the guy's suing you, only the only person that would have been sued for clothing is somebody that doesn't have anything, the poorest of the poor. So Jesus is talking to people who are, uh, a lot of them would have been indebted because of the, the Roman system, the Jewish system, whatever, you know, they, they didn't have anything. And so he's talking to these people. He says, if you are sued and they want your coat, give them your undergarment too. So you walk out completely in the buff. So, and I'm sure these people are just chuckling, you know, because, because okay, here's the thing. In Jewish culture, it, it was terrible to be, to see someone naked, but the shame was not on the person that's naked. It's the person that saw them. Remember the story of uh, Noah in the Old Testament and his son saw him naked? The shame was on the son. The shame wasn't, I mean, I would think, geez, Noah, get your act together. You need to be, you know, whatever. Anyway, but the shame <laughs> was on the son because he'd seen his nakedness. So now you've taken off all your clothes. You've said, here, you want my coat? You want my undergarment? What, what else? All I've got left is my body. You want to take that too? You've turned the tables. But not only that, you may have caused this person, the, the creditor, to think of what he's doing. Wait, wait. I, I, I don't want your, I don't want your clothes. Take your clothes back, you know? It's, it's like you've, you have, it's a statement against an unjust system. And it's not, you're not trying to make a fool of him, but you may be giving him a chance to see what his unjust practices do. So it raises the dignity of a person. Third example, um, if someone forces you to go a mile, go with them two miles, okay? The Roman soldiers were allowed to conscript anybody they wanted to and force them to carry their pack, which was heavy. I mean, uh, military packs are like, what, 80 pounds? I was thinking something like that. So, and that would have been comparable then. 
they could force you to carry it for a mile. And then it's like, but they, um, to walk a second, you get to the end of the mile, and, and he's like, all right, give it back. And you're like, oh, I'll, I'll keep going. And he's like, give me my backpack, my pack back. No, no, I don't mind. Let's keep walking, you know. And the guy's like, please give me my pack because he's going to get in trouble if he's seen forcing someone to go more than one mile. But he's turned the tables on him. He's turned the tables. He's evened the power structure. See, and so maybe, I don't know, maybe they give him a chance to talk. Who knows what the result of that could be. <coughs> when, you, when you refuse to be awed by the power of someone else, you're emboldened to seize the initiative. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? To, so if you walk the second mile, it says the rules are Caesar's, but how one responds to the rules, that's God's, and Caesar has no power over that. You've taken back your power of choice. Now, does that make a difference in how you read that scripture? It's like, oh my gosh, my eyes were opened, and I'm like, that is nuts. That is absolutely nuts. So there's some, um, like, guidelines for Jesus' third way of, of peace, <clears throat> like asserting your own humanity and dignity as a person, finding a creative alternative to violence. And don't say, I don't get angry, I get even. That's not, that's not it. No, no. Meet force with ridicule or humor. That's like, I mean, who would ever think of that? That's just like, anyway. Refuse to submit or accept the inferior position. I have never, it's interesting, as a woman, I've grown up my entire life never having been put in a position of um, being forced to take a subservient role or second place or I'm not as good as another person. I know a lot of women face that. <clears throat> I've never um, never faced that, probably because I was born and raised knowing that that was not the case, that I have the equal dignity and um, everything else rights as a man. But um, you, you refuse to accept it. And probably there's a sense in which you know, if somebody, uh, if somebody sees me walking or whatever I'm doing, because it, there's a, maybe there's a sense that I wouldn't accept being humiliated like that, that they don't mess with me. I don't know. I, that's, that's just something I'm thinking about. Um, you expose the injustice of the system. You can shame the oppressor, oppressor into repentance. Um, you can force the powers that be to make decisions for which they're not prepared, like the soldier. You have to be willing to suffer rather than to retaliate. That is a, that's kind of a given. You're not just breaking the laws willy-nilly. You're, you're, you're standing for something um, important, and you're causing the oppressor to see you in a new light. I heard um, an excellent example of this kind of a, well, there's a couple of examples. Um, one is at Tent of Nations, which is a, um, uh, a land, a 100-acre farm 
outside of Bethlehem. And the guy on there, they've owned the, um, the land since the Ottoman Empire, so like the early 1900s. And they, contrary to most Palestinians who, who seal a land deal with a handshake, you know, like they used to do, um, these have registered deeds to the land. And um, anyway, they've been in court. They've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to get, because they were trying to take their land. The, the, the Jewish settlements are trying to take the land from them, and the Israeli uh, military authorities aren't helping, of course. Anyway, short story. Um, this guy, the guy that lived, well, is part of that, Daud Nasser is his name. And he'll have some settlers. He's surrounded by five different settlements all around the, the property. And so he's had many times, he's had settlers come <coughs> with their guns, because they're always armed, and say, I want to come on your property. And he says, you're welcome, absolutely welcome. Just leave your guns here, and we'll go, we'll have tea. And they're like, I'm, I'm not leaving my gun. You know, and he says, okay, but... Let's switch the tables. Imagine if I came to your house and I was, had a gun strapped on my shoulder. Would you let me in? Absolutely not. Okay, but he's put them in the different place. He switched the power structure by doing that. So sometimes they have, I believe, come and had tea with them, and then other times they just turn around and leave. Then I read another story um, at some time about a lady who was, it was a Muslim lady on a subway. Um, and she had a hijab on, and she was um, being harassed. There was a guy that was just giving her hell, literally, um, you know, on the subway. And somebody, I think it was another woman, um, stood up, because the lady was sta standing holding on to the strap. And so she stood up, and she just went in front of the lady and said, Hey, how are you? My name is so-and-so, and... -so, and you know, just began to carry on a conversation, not, oh, isn't it terrible what this guy is doing, but just an ordinary, everyday conversation to break the power of the hate that was going on in there. And I guess the guy who was harassing her eventually got, um, got um, tired of, you know, being <sighs> left out or something. Anyway, he just finally kind of faded into the background. So I love that example because I can relate to that example. You know, I read all this stuff, and I'm like, but how do I do it? How do I, I – I'm not that quick a thinker. How do I do that? You know, but I believe, honestly, I do believe that God can share ways for us to do that. Okay, the other big thing about peace is um, the other scripture that – well, Jesus just went on, and it's all in the Sermon on the Mount – and he said, you have heard it was said, love your enemy, your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That's tough. That's tough. And what's sometimes tougher is allowing ourselves to accurately identify who we view as the enemy. Because sometimes we wouldn't like ourselves if we said, this person is, I, I perceive him as my enemy, you know. An enemy, uh, don't, don't get the, don't get the only perspective of enemy being like the Russians and the Ukrainians, okay. That's, that's, yes, that's enemy. But there are people that we strongly disagree with. You know, we think that their ideas are so, so wrong. 
So I'm going to read you a um, paragraph out of this book. It's called Jesus and Nonviolence by Walter Wink, and it is transforming. It says, love of enemies has, for our time, become the test of authentic Christian faith. Love of enemies is the recognition that the enemy, too, is a child of God. The enemy, too, believes he or she is in the right and fears us because we represent a threat against his or her values, lifestyle, or affluence, their, their needs. When we demonize our enemies, calling them names and identifying them with absolute evil, we deny that they have that of God within them that makes transformation possible. Instead, we play God. We write them out of the book of life. We conclude that our enemy has drifted beyond the redemptive hand of God. Listen to this. Love of enemies is seeing one's oppressors through the prism of the reign of God, not only as they are now, but also as they can become, transformed by the power of God. It's powerful, right? Love of enemies is, I mean, it's in our own best interest. It says, Jesus said that you may be sons and daughters of your father who is in heaven. So we, we, it's good for us as well as being good for them. We have to reassure that person, our enemy, that they're not going to be stripped of their livelihood or their security, that there's a, a place for them that, that we're not seeking to take everything from them. Allow them to save face and we can love them into being changed. We offer them dignity by really seeing them. Too often we see um, we see the others as kind of this one big um, amalgamation. So all immigrants are this. All Muslims are that. Some are, no doubt. I mean, there are good guys and bad guys in every group that you can think of, but not all. There are individuals, and it makes a huge, huge difference to us if we see them as individuals. So as peacemakers, I see this. Get the, get the picture in your mind. I know when I was talking about that Muslim lady on the subway. Get that picture in your mind. As peacemakers... We stand against oppression, pride, and the, the powers that be, and we stand with the oppressed. We are peacemakers in that we represent the kingdom that offers dignity and worth to all men, both the oppressed and also our enemy in all kinds of situations. Now, that's all well and good, but how do we put it together? Steve, put the questions. I've got questions and comments up here. This is where you guys get to start brainstorming. How do I love my enemy? Ideas? <coughs> hmm? Praying is good. Yes, absolutely.
exactly. Through the prism of the reign of God. Yep. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Good. So listening. Listening and trying to understand. Mm -hmm. <coughs> what are their needs? What are they afraid of losing? That's, I think that's a very big part. Because mm -hmm. they're wrong. Yeah, we don't like them. They're wrong. Yeah. Yes. It is easy. I think you're right. Yeah.
Exactly. And I think that's I think that's exactly what Jesus third way is to to understand and have them change and and without letting them off the hook. But you're changing the you're changing the dynamics, the power structure. I think that's important. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So Jesus said about loving my enemy, he said, bless those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. Look for goodness in others. Just kind of common grace things like, um, oh, they held the door open for that person. I don't know. Just whatever, you know. Um, Don't forget divine reward there's a power in hope like for us we we may be under oppression now I don't think any of us is necessarily under oppression right now but um, there is there is a power in hope Um, be more diligent than others and be like your father in heaven all right another question content with peacemaking that puts an end to violence but doesn't necessarily achieve justice. Exactly. I would think that's exactly the thing. Nobody wants to rock the boat. (laughs) Man, it's on tape too. Doggone. (laughs) Yes. What else? What else is are, are some reasons that we we don't care? I mean, we've got the violence stopped. I think ignorance is probably a big part of it, and indifference, both. Yeah.
think you're right. In some sense, yeah. In some sense, he's given us jobs here on Earth. Yeah. Maybe one of that is. Yeah. No, it's tough. Exactly, yeah. Not knowing. Well, let's let's take that opportunity then to move on to the third question. What examples can you think of that reflect Jesus' third way by resisting evil and demanding to be treated justly? Okay, these are small things, just things that we can think of that we can do. Don't don't anybody say you know Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement because that one's already been done. Okay, so we're going to move on from there. I think two things that you mentioned just there. You sat with the immigrants. I think physically positioning ourselves with someone that is um, facing uh, some kind of injustice, or it's kind of like holding space for someone in grief. You're not doing anything, you're being there, you know, and I think that's a huge part of it. So, and then confronting that guy. I think that's perfectly in line with what Jesus was talking about. Yeah. 
Get out of here, you jerk. <laughs> yeah. random. Check my sources. Yeah. Exactly. Or the things to do. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> in your face. Yeah, yeah. something that affirms their dignity, their worth, you know, that Jesus is lifting them up, whether it's our, it's the person under oppression or whether it's the, the enemy, the other, yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-
because you know we're really ancient, and and at least that conflict you know warrants that level of response in a thriving citizen. And so I think that's, we should first, I think, ask ourselves, why do I perceive this person as my enemy? And is that not enough to, you know, to identify as being your enemy? Or is this just somebody that their ideas on this topic, uh, I think, are crazy, and maybe they even make me angry, but does that make this person my enemy? Right. Yes. Probably not in a lot of cases, unless there's some sort of way that that manifests in a direct confrontation with this person. Mm-hmm. But we, we almost go looking for fights in order to have an enemy sometimes. That's true. And, and I don't think that's a, a reason. The enemies will show up. <laughs> They're real. We don't have to conjure them. Yes. They are yeah. real. They will show up. We don't need to go create them. Yes. And, and I think there's a chance to be creative and, and really exactly. be careful about that. I think you're free. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm going back to your, your statement that perhaps the advantage of being exposed is you're trying to pull somebody off. Mm-hmm. I'm the enemy here. Let me get out of here. Let me get out of my way. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's for sure. identify an enemy, the point is not to seek their name. The point is to yes. bring them, it's like you're trying to fight God's king, whether it's mm-hmm. through preaching the word and doing that, or other Bring people into mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes looking for enemies, that is the enemy for the heart. We want to like have an enemy, but <laughs> you have it wrong. That's not yes. the enemy because the enemy doesn't exist. Right. Um, I think also in the, the difficult with us as Americans, I would be surprised if many of us were in situations of seeing Nazi flags as describing the left. Mm-hmm. We're going to be attacked. We're going to be tortured. We're mm-hmm. we're we're just in the sense that as Americans, we have positioned ourselves pretty high up in the hierarchy of the world. Right. So if the way the world stands now, you're probably not going to have some foreign power come in and conquer us and be like the aggressors to Western nations. So I think it can be very difficult for us to like understand this sometimes and so the idea for enemy stuff, I think there's nothing wrong with like having in your mind who an enemy is or something, but a lot of times our context is different than what Jesus' context was mm-hmm. when he was on the cross. Like we're we are not oppressed in that way. At least it seems sometimes we don't look for the same way we look for an enemy let's look for oppressors yeah i think so we don't know if that's the most oppressed country in the world i don't know the president i've never i've experienced a lot of countries it's what people think and think about and they think and they think about um but i do think that kind of engages like you talked about so much change in culture that i don't know the right word i think it's just more of a confusing situation but even just like the idea of my comfort or my status we have as as america especially as a white can then use that like it's this monolithic threat or whatever there are people who do not have that same comfort so i mm-hmm. think part of this for us it's just difficult to see it because we don't live those experiences but there are people who do live in those experiences mm-hmm. and so it's 
putting yourself in the other mm-hmm. person's lexicon and those things that are going down with you because you are going to regress mm-hmm. as a result. That's part of how you can meet those things. Exactly, so yeah. So it's a progress. It does take, like, looking, I don't know, like looking out there a little bit. Like, you have to be aware of those things and those things that happen to you and figure out how to make change for yourself. Yes. Yeah, I think I think that all that we've talked about today um, works. I agree with what you're saying. We're looking too much for enemies. Um, I think it also de- de- um, it, it it works with those that we would define as the other, the capital O, the other, as well. So I think it's just kind of you know, these are the um, these are the techniques, not techniques, uh, but it works as well as any other word. Um, that we adopt from what Jesus is teaching and kind of go on about our everyday thing. So, All right, I'm going to close us with a prayer that we sang earlier because it was so perfect. So let's pray together. Jesus, form us, make us, mold us, shape us to be like you, move to action, full of mercy and compassion. Our hearts say, yes, Lord, come take control. In us, in us, come have your way, O Lord, in us, your way. Jesus, we welcome you, and we ask that you would teach us your way your way of peace, your way of justice, your way of um, raising the dignity and the honor and the worth of everyone that we come into contact with. Father, I just pray that as we go through this week that you would give us opportunities to see and opportunities to do. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.